بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 105 in the Radiant Light, studying the life of the Prophet And as we've said a few weeks ago, uh, we intended to finish the seerah right before Ramadan. But as you can tell from where we are in the seerah and how much further we have until Ramadan, that's not going to happen. So inshallah, we're going to continue after Ramadan. And it ends when it ends. Because there are sections in the seerah that should not be rushed past. That we should not rush through to cover. Certain topics definitely need more time. And we want to give everything its due right and due justice to the seerah of the Prophet So what year are we in the hijrah right now? I don't mean here now, I mean in the seerah. We're in the seventh. Yeah, we're in the seventh year of the hijrah. And this is the post-Hudaybiya environment. So a lot of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks concerns the new post-Hudaybiya environment where there is now a treaty, a peace treaty, a uh, armistice between the Prophet and the Meccans, the Quraysh. And speaking about this post Hudaybiyyah environment, we discussed the various letters that were sent by the Prophet to various world leaders. And last week we talked about the attack, the use of sihr to attack the Prophet, which of course was thwarted and undone by the revelation of Surah Al-Falaq and Surah An-Nas. So in this period, there were also a couple of minor ghazawat. And we call them minor because they were small skirmishes and they don't compare to the larger ghazawat such as Badr and Uhud and Khandaq and soon to be Khaybar, which we cover today inshallah. So I wanted to talk about a couple of these before we go into the incident of Khaybar, which is a major topic in the seerah. We have in this post-Hudaybiya environment, and these things occurred before the attack of the Sihr. We have an expedition that was led by Zayd ibn al-Haritha to a place called Himsa. Now Himsa is located in the north. It is in the desert of Sham, not too far from Tabuk. And the story behind this is that the representative, the Rasul, the emissary, sent by the Prophet ﷺ to the Qaisar of the Byzantines was Dihya al-Kalbi. Now Dihya al-Kalbi we spoke a little bit about. And we mentioned that he was among the handsomest of the Arabs. And most of the time when the angel Jibreel would appear in a human form, he would look like Dihya al-Kalbi. And some of the ulama, one of the great ulama of Andalusia, he said that the reason why the angel Jibreel would take the form looking like Dihya al-Kalbi is because he was among the handsomest of the Arabs and he's coming with a weighty message. So coming with a weighty message, he also comes in a very handsome, welcoming, familiar face when he brings that revelation. Anyhow, Dihya was returning from delivering the letter to Heraclius, the Qaisar, the leader of the Byzantines. And as he's making his way back from delivering this letter, he is attacked. Who attacks him? He is attacked by some people from the clan of Judam, Banu Judam. 
they robbed him and stole everything on him, leaving him just with a worn-out jubba, a worn-out robe. That's all he had. So you imagine someone like Dihya traveling from Medina to Sham and from Sham back to Medina. He has an animal, he has food, he has supplies, he has clothing. He probably also has some gifts that were given to him. And we know from one narration, gifts were given, some gold was given. All of that is stolen from him by these brigands from Banu Judam. All they leave him with is a worn out robe. So as he's wandering in these deserts with a worn out robe after being robbed, a group from another tribe, the tribe of Banu Dubayb, they hear about what happened to him and they go and chase the robbers and retrieve the belongings and bring them back to Dihya. Why would they do that? Why would Banu Judam attack him and take all of his things? But Banu Dubayb hears about it, goes and fights them and gets the things back. It's because Banu Dubayb was an Arab tribe that had become Muslim. And this is what we're hearing about more and more. As Islam is taking root in the society in Medina and spreading through alliances and conversions, you have more and more of these distant Arab tribes that are becoming Muslim. It doesn't mean that every single individual from those tribes is becoming a Muslim, but at least the chieftains and those of authority, they're becoming Muslim, leading the majority of the members to become Muslim as well. And they're not living in Medina, right? They're going as delegations and pledging loyalty, spending a little bit of time in Medina, but they go back to their tribal areas. And so when they heard about this, they got upset, rightly so. And they tracked down those individuals of Banu Judam. They fought them and got the things back and brought them to Dihya. Now Dihya, radiallahu anhu, makes his way back to Medina. And of course, when he arrives, he tells the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa about what happened. And he asks for permission to retaliate. He asks for permission to retaliate. Now, you know, we read the seerah. Uh, through certain modern lenses. And it's very difficult to read it through any other lenses because we're like the fish inside of the fishbowl swimming around in the water. We're not realizing we're in the water unless we're taken out of the water. So in many ways, when we read the seerah, we don't fully understand why he would even say that. But I ask you to consider that those kinds of attacks have to be responded to. They have to be checked. Because if they are not, it sends a signal that we are right. We are open for being attacked again and again, and there will be no response. In those societies, if you don't respond with force, they will take advantage of you. So he wanted to retaliate. And so the Prophet ﷺ also saw this as a wise move. And he sent 500 men to go there to that area called Hamsa to retaliate against this unwarranted attack. So the Muslim army head north and they do encounter Banu Judam and they fight them and heavy losses were suffered by their side and the chief of Banu Judam, Al-Hunayd ibn Arid and his son were killed and 1,000 camels were captured, 5,000 heads of cattle and 100 prisoners. Now, the new chief of Banu Judam had actually embraced Islam. And so he appealed to the Prophet ﷺ to release his fellow tribesmen, and so they were all released, and that was that. So even among that tribe, you had some Muslims. So you're seeing this development in the spread of Islam taking root among the tribes, where some are Muslim, but not all. Some are allied, some are not. So this, is, this happened before the magic incident. And it's a small skirmish. We also have another ghazwa that occurred before Khaybar. In fact, in one riwayah, the Prophet ﷺ returned from this ghazwa just three days before going to Khaybar. And this is known as the ghazwa of the Qarad, also known as ghazwa al-Ghaba. And the reason why it's called Ghaba is because it was a meadow. It was, a, I wouldn't say a wooded area because... 
it's not wooded, but it is a meadow, lush area where people would take their camels. So the Sira books all mention that this ghazwa of Dhuqarad took place before the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah. However, here we are talking about it in the post-Hudaybiyah environment. The reason why is because although the Sira works mention it happening before Hudaybiyah, we have an explicit narration in Bukhari and Muslim, which says that it was three days before Khaybar. So we're going to go with that when we look at the chronology and the timeline of events. Now there's a long story about what led up to this, so I'll just summarize it. You all know of the Sahabi Abu Dharr al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu. Abu Dharr al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu was known as a person who inclined towards seclusion. He was a bit of a loner. He liked to be away from the hustle and bustle. He liked to seclude himself. And so he asked the Prophet ﷺ for permission to go out to this area in order to take his camels so he could tend to them out there and be just alone for some time, you know, alone in nature. Now the Prophet ﷺ initially did not like this idea. And he said to him, I'm afraid that you will not be safe from Uyayna bin Hassan al-Fazari. Now, that's another individual with all of the names that we throw out in the class. It's easy to mix people up. But I remind you that Uyayna bin Hassan al-Fazari was that man from the Najd who came and had a discussion with the Prophet and offered to divorce one of his wives and marry her off to him after he saw Sayyidina Aisha. And he was very rude and uncouth and rough around the edges. And after he left, the Prophet ﷺ says that he is al-ahmaq al-muta'ah, the foolish person who is obeyed among his people. Now, Uyayna bin Hassan eventually becomes a Muslim. But then he actually leaves Islam later on. And then during the reign of Umar, he comes back to Islam. And Imam al-Tabari and others, they say in their biographies, Hasuna Islamuhu. His Islam became okay after that. But he was definitely a very troubled man. And in, and in this part of the seerah, he's not yet a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ was worried for Abu Dharr and said, I'm afraid that you won't be safe from Uyayna bin Hassan al-Fazari attacking you. And Abu Dharr radiallahu anhu repeated his request. He really wanted to get out and in, in the open air and away from the city. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, It's as if I can see you now, your son being killed and your wife being taken captive and you coming back to me leaning on a cane. It's as if I see that. This is what he told Abu Dharr radiallahu anhu. But he relented and, and allowed him to go. But he expressed his worry that he might be attacked. And that's exactly what happened to Abu Dharr radiallahu anhu. He went out there with about 20 camels in this area with his son. And this area is a meadow. It's a lush area called Ghaba. Ghaba literally means jungle or forest or a wilderness-like area. And this area of Ghaba is located pretty much between Sham and Medina. So it is some ways from Medina, in between Sham and Medina. So he's out there, and of course, Ruyayna bin Hassan al-Fazari attacks him with 46 horsemen. He attacks him and his son. They kill his son, and they take all of the camels. And Abu Dharr is injured in this. Now, the Prophet ﷺ is soon informed about what happened to Abu Dharr and his family. And he sent a group of horsemen under the command of Sa'ad ibn Zayd to go respond to these attackers immediately. And the Prophet ﷺ instructed Sa'ad ibn Zayd, follow the mushrikun that attacked until I and the people catch up with you. 
So after the horsemen went off, the Prophet ﷺ appointed Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum as his deputy, the one leading prayer in Medina. And then he goes off with a group of 500 soldiers towards this area. And this is the area of Ghatafan, that tribe of Ghatafan. We have to be aware of these names and these opponents, Ghatafan. So they get there, they catch up with the enemy at a place called Zuqarad. And that's why the battle is known as the Battle of Ghaba or Zuqarad. And this was two days away from Medina, two days travel. And they responded to these attackers and they fought them. Some of them were killed and they were able to get some of the camels back, not all of them. And this is recorded by Ibn Sa'd in his tabaqat. And there's also a hadith describing it in Sahih Muslim. Now the Prophet ﷺ remained in this area for one more day and night in order to search those areas surrounding it to make sure there's no one else. And then he returned to Medina. Now Abu Dhar anhu, he's the one telling this story too. Remember what he said. The Prophet ﷺ says, I fear that you'll be killed. It's as if I see you, your son being killed, your wife being killed taking captive, and you returning to me, hobbling on a cane. So Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu is reflecting on this. And later on, as he tells the story of what happened, he said, I wonder at myself. I wonder at myself. The Prophet sallallahu said, it's as if I can see you, and yet I insisted on going, and it happened just as he described. It happened exactly as he described. When he says... It's as if I can see you. It's, it's literal. It's, he's being shown what will happen. But that is in the, the domain of the batin, of the inward. And there's no specific tashri'ah that's forbidding him from going. So people make their decisions. He gave people autonomy to make certain decisions like that. But they have to bear the consequences. So this happened uh, before the battle of Khaybar. And Khaybar took place three days after this battle. It's also in this time and connected with this incident that we have the story of the companion known as Salama ibn al-Akwa'a Now that's a really interesting story because out of all of the companions, we can say that Salama ibn al-Akwa'a was their champion runner their champion runner, as you'll learn from this story. Now, Salama ibn al-Akwa, he's not a prolific hadith narrator. He's not from the fuqaha or the ulama of the sahaba. He is a man of the land. He is a fighter. He is a man of combat, and he is very physically fit. And he was perhaps the best runner out of all of the Muslims in Medina. And Salama ibn al-Akwa also has another honor that no other sahabi had. And that honor is that he was able to pledge the bay'ah of Ridwan at Hudaybiyah three times with the Prophet And you wonder how that could happen. Simply imagine, if you will, that there's 1,000 plus people there. And they're assembling in groups, each going and putting their hand in the hand of the Prophet them pledging. Well, he's taking advantage of the crowds and he puts his hand in pledges. He goes back into the crowd, comes back again, does it a second time, comes back again, does it a third time within the crowd. Only he had that honor. So he is the one Sahabi who can say, I pledge bay'ah, loyalty to him, three times at Hudaybiyah, radiallahu anhu. So in this post-Hudaybiyah environment, Salama ibn al-Aqwa, along with the other Muslims, returns to Medina. And in Medina, there was another Sahabi by the name of Rabah. Now Rabah was a kind of khadim, servant to the Prophet And one of the jobs of Rabah was to tend to the camels, right? You're familiar with horses. Right, the equestrian sports, you know, horses require a lot of upkeep. Camels also require a lot of upkeep, perhaps less than horses, but they have to be tended to. You have to take them out to graze. You can't just keep them in the pen. They have to get out and eat. 
And so some people have to go out and drive these camels to certain locations so they can eat and drink and then bring them back. That job went to Rabah radiallahu anhu. And he took it upon himself to go to the very same area, this meadow area for the camels to graze. Salama ibn al-Aqwa' decided that he's going to go with him and the small group that's accompanying Rabah. Because he felt, as the Prophet ﷺ expressed, there's some danger in this area. Why is there danger here? We have the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, right? That's a peace treaty between the Muslims and Quraysh. So there's no conflict coming from the south. But what's to the north? What's to the north of Medina? Well, you have Khaybar, right? Banu Nadir is there. Banu Qaynuqa. Not Banu Quraydah though. You have Ghatafan. Where was Ghatafan? Ghatafan allied with Banu Quraidah in the Battle of Ahzab. And it was for money and for goods, and it was half-hearted, but they still allied with them and were a threat. So the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims are not facing a threat from the south, but they are facing two threats from the north. They're facing the threat of the Yahud at Khaybar, and they're facing threat from Ghatafan, and these allied clans that are not yet Muslim. So Salama ibn al-Aqwa felt it was wise to go out with Rabah and his small group just to guard them because he's a warrior. He can do security for them. And so the hadith mentioned that when they arrived at this meadow, this ghaba, they waited until the morning without sleeping on the first night. They're basically staying on guard to make sure they don't get ambushed. So as it was almost Fajr and they were about to lay down to rest, some of these people from Ghatafan came and raided their area. I said ambush, but ambush is when you're moving, a raid is when you're stationary. They were stationary, so they raided them in the darkness of the early morning. And the people who raided them were from the people of Uyayna ibn Husan al-Fazari. And they launched an attack and they killed the shepherd and took the camels away. Now, the shepherd here is not Rabah. It's one of the people attending with him. Rabah himself, he, sent, he was sent by Salama ibn al-Aqwa in that moment to go back to Medina to tell the Prophet ﷺ about what's going on, alerting him to this threat. So who's there? You had the, other, the shepherd who was killed, maybe a couple of others who are just doing small tasks, and you have Rabah and you have Salama. Rabah is go, going back to Medina. One shepherd is killed. It is really Salama who has the weapons and the ability to fight these people, but he's just one man. And this is where we get to the famous story of his heroism, his bravery, his valor, and his fighting prowess. He's on foot. He's not on a camel. He's not on a horse, and he's very skilled at running. He has a lot of stamina. So he uses that skill to run all over the place, uh, targeting these tribesmen who attacked them and took the camels. So it's mentioned in the narration that he raced after them after they fled. They're going on camels. They took the camels, so they're a little slowed down, but they're on camels themselves. They're not walking. They're getting away. He is running after them with his weapons in tow. He is literally running after them. And when he gets nearby, he shouts some poetry because this is how the Arabs do it. The poetry rhymes and it's basically him expressing his bravery and strength. And he says, Oh bandits, listen attentively to me. I am Ibn al-Aqwa'. Today will be the day of your demise. I'm going to cut you down. And so these camel thieves, they wanted to get out of the area, but they heard what he said and they realized this person is running around. He's a threat. So Salama did not want them to go. So it's mentioned in the seerah that he took out his bow and arrow and began to shoot arrows at them from a distance. Now, one of the arrows hits a bandit, causing him to fall down off of his camel. And his friends didn't fetch him and put him back on the camel. They just left him. So 
here's a wounded man from the bandits. His friends are taking off on the camels. Salama struck him, but he's not stopping there. He's running to catch the others. So he's running after them as well while they left their friend there. And they see that he's still following them and that they couldn't really escape him. He's just so fast. So one of them turns around and rides over to Salama in order to fight him. And Salama sees him coming, doesn't panic. He calmly takes out his bow and arrow, aims at this man and fires. It hits the guy and he falls off the camel or the horse in one narration. So now the other bandits are starting to get scared. Like this guy is not only is a good runner, he's an excellent shot. His marksmanship is on point. So they're scattering and running off. Sadama doesn't stop. He keeps chasing them on foot, running after them. And, you know, this is not a track. He's not wearing nice, expensive tennis shoes. He's probably wearing sandals. He may even be barefooted for all we know. But he's running, and he's not running on a nice flat track. He's running on rocky terrain where there's no rocks, there's sand. And when you're running in sand, your feet sink into it. None of this deters him. He keeps going after them. So the narration says that he chases after them until they enter into this narrow valley. And when he's in the valley, he climbs up one of the hills very quickly, and he begins to roll these massive boulders on the hill down onto the horsemen or those on the camels from these bandits. So before they're getting shot with the arrows and he's chasing after them running, now he's on top of the hill rolling down boulders that are crashing on top of them. They're just trying to get out of there. There's no way they can fight him. He's too agile, he's too fast, and he's too accurate. So this happens, and Sadama just keeps following them. Now they start dropping their belongings, because they got to go faster. And as they drop the belongings, Sadama ibn Akwa realizes, hey, this is Ghanima. But I can't just take it. It has to be apportioned to me by the Prophet So what does he do? He takes rocks and he stacks them on top of each other next to all of these things that they're dropping. Why does he do that? Because when the Muslims eventually catch up after the message reaches them, they're going to see these belongings and with the rocks stacked next to them, it's a signal that this was captured or these people dropped this as they were fleeing. That is not a person's belongings. That is Ghanima to be distributed according to the rules of Ghanima. So he does this, and they're running off. They're throwing off their belongings. They're leaving, leaving their spears and robes and just running away. And he's running after them still. And he's not tired. He just keeps going. Eventually, he deals with most of them and the others escape. And eventually the message reaches the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, a large group, go there to help him in the event of a second attack. And when they get there, because you, you have to understand, even though they've scattered, it's still tribal territory. So they may have gotten away. But they're still in their tribal territory. So they can regroup with some other tribesmen and come back with more forces. So there's always that threat, even if they manage to escape from him. So he's still in that area, that tribal area. The Muslims eventually reach that area to fortify him. Uh, one of the Muslims by the name of Akram was there at the front. And he encountered Salama ibn anhu, and he stops him and says that the Mushrikun have lots of weapons and they're going to fortify and bring uh, more people. So you should stop. Don't, don't continue your pursuit looking for others. And Salama ibn al-Aqwa is mindful of this, but Akram decides to pursue it further. He decides that he's on a horse or a camel and... He's going to go further and further into their territory to try to intercept them. And he tells Sadama what he wants to do and how he wants to have this opportunity to wage jihad, peace of And he says, 
do not stop a person who wants, who believes in Allah in the hereafter. Do not try to prevent me from attaining shahada. So he goes and rides out to this tribal area. He eventually meets more forces of the people of Uyayna and he's shot down. He's killed in that pursuit. Uh, they eventually uh, scatter and flee seeing the forces of the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ is there with some of the companions near the well where Salama had first encountered those uh, mushrikun and the Prophet ﷺ, there was no fighting after that but the Prophet ﷺ was very happy with Salama and his bravery he was very pleased to see someone of such valor and he praised him by saying, the best foot soldier today is Salama ibn al-Akwa' and the best raqib, the best uh, horseman today is Abu Qatada. And so then they collect the ghanima that was left behind. They collect it and the Prophet ﷺ distributes the shares, giving one share to the foot soldier, Salama, and giving uh, two shares to the horsemen. And Salama radiallahu anhu, he later recounts this story, and he says, I felt just then, after all of this, all of this running and sprinting and fighting, he says, I felt that I was hungry and tired only after I joined up with the companions. Before they came, he wasn't feeling tired, he wasn't feeling hunger or thirst. But when they finally arrived, then all of that hunger and fatigue set in. He said, then I was able to drink some milk and use some water for wudu. And when I drank the milk and made the wudu, I, I overcame my hunger, my thirst, and my tiredness. He's saying that he didn't feel hunger, thirst, or fatigue until he met up with the Sahaba. But as soon as he drank the milk and made wudu, he was rejuvenated again. He was ready to go back in action. These are different people. You know, if, if you sprint even 5% of what he was sprinting, if I did that, we'd have to spend days recovering, lying on the couch or something. He just drinks a little bit of milk and makes wudu and he's ready to go back. And so he says that... He overcame his hunger and tiredness after drinking the milk and making wudu. And, but there's no more fighting. So the tribesmen had scattered. And there's nothing more to do except go back to Medina. But the story doesn't end here. They're going back to Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ put Salama ibn al-Aqwa on his camel as an honor. And it is said that that camel was the camel known as Adba. And he's riding on the Prophet's camel. And he has the compliment of the Prophet ﷺ. He's beaming with joy. He was told that the very best foot soldier is Salama. And he's on the Prophet's camel riding back to Medina. What honor is greater than this? He's so happy. And as they're moving towards Medina slowly, one of the Ansar shouted, is there anyone who is willing to race me to Medina? You see, because the Sahaba, they liked competition. That's a healthy and proper expression of manhood. Men like to compete. Competition is a way of building your skill and the skill of your opponent. You both win, even if one loses the competition. You both win in that you're developing your skills. Whether it's horseback riding, archery, wrestling, swimming, running, whatever it is. So this Ansari says, who is willing to compete with me in racing from here back to Medina? This is a, what, what we would call today a uh, ultra marathon. A marathon is how many miles? Uh, 26, give or take. This is an ultra marathon. And when the Ansari said, who's willing to race me to Medina, who do you think accepted the challenge? Salama ibn al-Aqwa. After all of that running the day before, he's ready to run again. And so, despite his tiredness, he accepts the challenge. And he says to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, 
give me permission to race him. When he was given permission, he said to the companion who wanted the race, go ahead and start. I'll catch up. He's giving him a head start. So the Ansari man begins the race. He's running. Salama takes his time. He gets off the camel. We don't know exactly what he was doing. I would assume that someone like that would stretch or maybe have some more milk or water. But he takes his time as the Ansari has a head start. And then he gets off the camel and he begins his run. And guess who won the race? Salama ibn radiallahu anhu. He ran from that point all the way until he reached the city of Medina. So this took place three days before one of the great pivotal battles in the history of Islam. The battle uh, known as Khaybar, which we're now going to talk about insha'Allah. Now the details of the battle we'll be going into next week. Today, in the time that remains, we just want to talk about what led up to it, what was going on behind the scenes, and why was it a, a battle in the first place. Now, the battle of Khaybar, as we said, took place three days after this incident of Dhul Qarad, and it said that it took place in the month of Muharram. So these events are happening in the month of Muharram, although some of the works of Sira give different dates, and they say it took place in Safar, some say Rabi al-Awwal, and some even say Jumad al-Ula. You always find these little discrepancies with the dates for certain events. It doesn't, doesn't really uh, harm us in any way, that discrepancy. Now, Khaybar is significant in that it represents the final expulsion of the Jewish tribes in Arabia. We remember that there were three Jewish tribes in Medina, Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Qurayza. And they were all dealt with for their treachery in that order, Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, Banu Qurayza being the last. Now, the peace treaty uh, at Hudaybiyah has established a peace and non-conflict between the Muslims and Quraysh. But there is no such treaty with these outlying tribes to the north. No such treaty. So while the Muslims are relatively safe from being attacked from the south, there is no such guarantee of safety from attack coming from the north. And this meant that Ghatafan was still a threat. And in the post-Hudaybiyah environment, the main security concern was Ghatafan, as well as their allies from the remainder, the remainder of the Jewish tribes that had settled post-expulsion in this city, this oasis town known as Khaybar. What is Khaybar? A Khaybar is 150 kilometers north of Medina. And it represents a cluster of Jewish towns in this oasis area. And when we say cluster, we mean that there were uh, dozens, perhaps upwards to two dozen, smaller walled compounds, similar to the walled compounds of the tribes in Medina. So a significant number of Banu Nadir had settled in this oasis town of Khaybar, including Huyay ibn Akhtab, who was later executed with Banu Qurayza because he was there during that battle. It's narrated in the books of Sirah that the city of Khaybar, uh, the Jewish tribes of Medina already owned large tracts of land in Khaybar before the expulsion. So they're living in Medina in their walled compounds, but they own real estate up there. So they have ties, and it was a Jewish area. So when they were expelled, large numbers of Banu Nadir, they went north to Khaybar. They didn't leave Arabia entirely. So they're still there. They're far from Medina, but not that far. right? And they're in the general tribal areas of Khatafan. And now stationed there at Khaybar, Banu Nadir thought that they can regain what was lost in Medina 
by building alliances with those hostile tribes. Now, we already saw a, a hostile allegiance between Ghatafan and uh, Banu Quraidah during the Battle of Ahzab. Banu Nadir is also trying to build alliances with these enemy tribes in hopes that they should one day get the ability to attack again and come from the north and regain what was lost. So this is a security threat for the Muslims. And when you understand these alliances that were being built between Ghatafan and Banu Quraidah, you understand why the response to them was harsher than the response to Banu Qaynuqa and Banu Nadir before. It's because of these alliances. But now Banu Nadir is doing the exact same thing, but from a distance. So this Jewish presence in the north, some of the scholars remark that that presence of theirs in the north in Khaybar also answers a question as to why the Prophet ﷺ was so insistent on sending troops to respond to these, to these attacks. It has to be a show of force that as a kind of deterrent, lest they think that the Muslims are weak. So when these isolated tribes are attacking, you get a response of 500 people coming. That message gets back to Banu Nadir. So they realize, oh, they still have force. They, they're, still, they're still a threat. They're still a force to be reckoned with. That becomes a kind of deterrent against them launching an attack. Now, if you go back to the Seerah in the, 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 in the Battle of Ahzab, you know that Huyay ibn Akhtab from Banu Nadir had been killed uh, after the Battle of Ahzab. And you'll remember that there was a mission to assassinate one of their tribal leaders who was instigating these things, Salam, Salam ibn Abi Huqayq. And after Salam was assassinated, he had a successor who became the leader of Banu Nadir named Usair bin Zarim. And he continued the same conspiring as his predecessor, and he conspired with Ghatafan against the Muslims. And he too was eventually killed in an aborted attempt at diplomacy. There's a, a, a story we told some weeks back about how they were coming to Medina to negotiate, and in the last minute, he decided to break that agreement, and a fight broke out. So there's already murmurings of possible attacks, conspiracies to ally with Ghatafan, and the possibility of trying to retake Medina and gain what they lost. So these skirmishes that are happening with these other tribes in response to their attacks, uh, these are obviously going to slow down Banu Nadir a little bit by showing that the Muslims have force, but it's not going to stop them for good. Eventually, they're going to find a way to build that alliance, uh, gather their forces, gather their arms, and eventually make an attempt to attack the Muslim community in Medina. So something has to be done. Prior to Al-Hudaybiyah, before that treaty was made, could the Prophet ﷺ respond to those individuals at Khaybar? Not really. Because if he was to commit all of those forces to the north, that leaves the Muslims vulnerable from the south. Because Quraysh still had plans. Right? So before Hudaybiyah, this was not an option on the table. But now that Hudaybiyah has been finalized, there's now a peace treaty between the Muslims and Quraysh, the south is basically safe, which means that they can commit forces to the north and feel safe. And although Medina is still in a sensitive position, it's not under dire threat as it was before Hudaybiyah. And this goes to show you one of the wisdoms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, because some of the Muslims felt that it was a humiliation and they didn't realize that this Treaty of Hudaybiyah actually be became an opening for them dealing with this problem in the north. And that's one of the fruits of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, as we talk about the lead up to the battle and what led to it, we find something really interesting. When you go into the books of Sirah, whether it is uh, Ibn Ishaq, Ibn Hisham, Al-Waqidi, the earlier sources or the later sources, it doesn't matter which book of Sirah you go to. 
when you go through the major books of Sirah, there is a narration found outside of the Sirah literature that's not found in any of those, that actually sheds light into what happened and why this attack took place. So there is a narration not mentioned in the books of Sirah, but is mentioned by Al Imam Muhammad al Sarakhsi in his work Kitab al Mabsut. Who is Muhammad al Sarakhsi? Al Imam Muhammad al Sarakhsi was one of the great Hanafi ulama, one of the great fuqaha of the uh, Hanafi school. And his Kitab al Mabsut is a commentary on Kitab al Siyar al Kabir. The, the book by the great student of Imam Abu Hanifa, Muhammad al-Shaybani, who was a mujtahid in his own right. Kitab al-Siyar al-Kabir is a major foundational work in Islamic law, not just for the Hanafis, but as a precedent, unprecedented work used by even the other schools in studying the early formation of Islamic international policy, and power and politics and warfare and economics. It, it, it covers the gamut of issues related to governmental policy, international relations, you name it. It's a very influential book. So Imam al-Sarakhsi is commenting on Asir al-Kabir of Muhammad al-Shaybani in this work, Kitab al-Mabsud. It is a very famous, well-respected work. In his work, he brings a narration, and it states, and I quote, that an agreement existed between Mecca and Khaybar, that if the Prophet ﷺ marched on one of the two, the other party would attack Medina. So this is a narration that says, before Hudaybiyah, those people in Khaybar had an agreement with Quraysh. If Quraysh are attacked from the north by the Muslims, they will come from the north to Medina and attack Medina. If the Muslims go north and attack Khaybar, the Quraysh will respond by attacking from the south, attacking Medina. A, a pre-existing agreement was made between those Jewish tribes and Quraysh that they would help each other out if one or the other was attacked by the Muslims. Imam al-Sarakhsi, in his Kitab al-Mabsut, he comments that during the negotiations for the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah, the Prophet was able to negotiate an annulment of this condition. He was able to negotiate that this particular agreement be nullified and Quraysh agreed to strike that agreement down to nullify it and with the formal signing of the treaty of al-Hudaybiyah that agreement is no more which means that if there was to be a preemptive attack to respond to their threat there is no threat of attack an attack coming from the south towards Medina from the side of Quraysh this is a very important text it's not mentioned in the books of Sirah uh, it's mentioned in this work of fiqh, but it adds some clarity as to why the attack on Khaybar happened when it happened and not before Hudaybiyah. So Khaybar, looking at uh, as a place, we said it's, it's an oasis town, so it's fertile ground, and it had lots of small fortresses that the Jews had built uh, long a long time before. And we understand from that that each sub-clan from these Jewish tribes are residing in an individual fortress. And they're scattered throughout Khaybar. Uh, some of the early works of Sirah say it was seven or eight, some say a dozen. Some modern studies looking at archaeological evidence suggest that it's upwards to two dozen of these small fortresses. At any rate, there were many walled fortresses this presents a challenge and a problem for the Muslims because until now, they have still not developed the technology for dealing with siege warfare. And, and this happened with Banu Nadir before that, remember? They, and, and Banu Quraidah. 
the issue of dealing with them in their walled compounds. So they had to deal with this issue, and this is going to become an issue during the Battle of Khaybar, as you'll see next week, inshallah. So going back to the pre-Hudaybiyah environment and the post-Hudaybiyah environment, remember that after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was signed, a lot of the Muslims were feeling uneasy about it, and they felt that it was a kind of humiliation. And you'll also remember that as the Muslims were going back to Medina, after they left Hudaybiyah, Allah Ta'ala revealed the entirety of Surah Al-Fatih to the Prophet Sallallahu And in Surah Al-Fatih, remember what Allah says. فَأَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ وَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا وَمَغَانِمَ كَثِيرًا يَأْخُذُونَهَا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَزِيزًا حَكِيمًا Allah Ta'ala says, and He sent down tranquility upon them, Sakina and reward, rewarded them with a close or a near victory. Fathan qariban. That fath, that soon, that victory to come soon, is referring to the battle of Khaybar. Wa And he rewarded them with abundant spoils of war that they shall take, and Allah is almighty and wise. This ayah, is speaking about the Battle of Khaybar. The Prophet ﷺ receives the divine command to make the preparations to march on Khaybar. This is the near victory that Allah promised him in the community. He's now getting ready for it. He tells the companions to make themselves ready for it, to prepare their armor and their weapons and their animals and their supplies. He tells them, Ready yourselves against this village of oppressors. And he's making an iqtibas. Iqtibas is like you're drawing iqtibas from the Quran. And this is in reference to the ayah in Surah An-Nisa, the dua of the musadha'afeen, the weak and oppressed people, when they mention qaryati zalimi ahluha. Right, the Qaryat al Vadimi Ahluha, this village of oppressive people. So he's referring to them in the same terms. He says, You have been given victory over them. He says, Allah willing, let none of you come with an irritated, untamed camel or a weak riding ammo to follow us. Bring your strong steeds, bring your strong horses, your strong camels. Don't bring a weak animal. And so the Prophet ﷺ now announces that he's going to Khaybar and he takes with him 1,700 men. He leaves Siba' ibn Urfuta of Banu Ghifar in charge of Medina and he takes his wife Umm Salama with him, leaving the other wives to remain in the city of Medina. Now next week, of course, we're going to go into the arrival and the actual battle itself and all the things that transpired. So what I want to conclude this class with is a letter. You see, the Prophet ﷺ had sent the Jews of Khaybar a letter before he arrived. They knew he was coming. And in the letter he says, and I quote, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, min Muhammad, Rasulillah, Sahibi Musa wa Akhihi. He says, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, the companion of Musa and his brother, and from one who believes in what Musa preached. And Allah has said to you, O people of the book, and surely you find such in your scripture the following. So he's, he's telling them, surely you find in your scripture a meaning that corresponds to the following. And the following is, قوله تعالى محمد رسول الله Muhammad is the messenger of Allah والذين معه الشداء الكفار حماء بينهم so he quotes the entire section of this description in the chapter where Allah Ta'ala mentions at the end of that chapter 
Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and those with him are firm with the disbelievers and compassionate with one another. You see them bowing and prostrating in prayer, seeking Allah's bounty and pleasure. The sign of brightness can be seen on their faces from the traces of prostration. This is their description in the, in the Torah. This is what Allah Ta'ala mentions in the ayah. وَمَثَلُهُمْ فِي الْإِنْجِيلِ And their example mentioned in the gospel is that of a seed that sprouts its branches making it strong. Then it becomes thick, standing firmly on its stem to the delight of the planters. In this way, Allah makes the believers a source of dismay for the disbelievers. To those of them who believe and do good, Allah has promised forgiveness and a great reward. So he quotes the last section of the, of the, ver, of the, of the surah telling the Jews of Khaybar, this meaning is in your scriptures, and you know the description is there. He says, I beseech you by Allah and by that which has been revealed to you, and I beseech you by the one who has fed those of your tribe before you with manna and salwa, and I beseech you by the one who made solid the sea for your forefathers so that he saved them from Fir'aun and his deeds that you tell me truthfully, do you find in what Allah revealed to you that you must believe in me, Muhammad? If you do not find that in your book, then there's no compulsion on you, for guidance has been made clear from going astray. So I call you to Allah and his prophet. This is in Ibn Hishab Sirah. So this tells us that he sent them a message beforehand. He's giving them da'wah. He's giving them opportunities even after their attempts of assassination, even after their attacks, even after their conspiracies. He still gives them the chance. He still calls them to Allah, but we know they don't respond, except for very few of them. So next week, inshallah, we go through the battle in all of its details. Bithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. من سؤال فضل الأشهر الحرم if if you're if you're attacked yeah I mean it's كلام يقال it's it's mentioned there's no discussion about it being in conflict based on it being in the the sacred months but generally if uh, you're attacked preemptively or you have to respond to a, a, an attack that's impeding, that's uh, inevitable, then you have to respond. It's a kind of self-defensive maneuver if you know they're conspiring to attack. But that's, the, that's one view of several views. And at the end of the day, uh, they're trying to reconstruct a timeline of events. And sometimes, because there's no accurate recording of dates, they're not really sure. So... It's oftentimes, it's oftentimes re related You know, يقال, right? أقيل. It's uh, we call that the uh, in in Arabic, tamrid uh, form is basically it's inconclusive, and you're not asserting that to be the the, the sound view or the authoritative view. It's just you're recording what has been said about it, even if it's not strong. So, yeah. Yes. I can't hear you. Yeah, so Abu Dhar's son was killed in that attack, and he was wounded, but he went on to live. He didn't die from that. He came back to Medina, and he eventually went back to his life of seclusion after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ during the time of the Khulafa he basically secluded himself and, and he was known you know in the Ayyamul Fitna he took a conclusive stance you know uh, siding with Ahlul Haq in the disputes that arose later in history but he secluded himself and stayed out of any political conflict he just devoted himself to ibadah, salat, and siyam. And, and he is that kind of individual who 
didn't really like to be around people. He's the he's kind of like the ambassador of Uzla, of withdrawing from society and sticking to your own private business. He's kind of an ambassador for that as a virtue. Um, and yeah, he went on to live his life like this until he passed. Exactly. There's lots of hadith about Abu Dhar, and he was praised for that quality. Uh, this person who is, you know, living on his own, going on his own, you know, resurrected on his own. That's how he was. And that's a certain archetype of people who they prefer seclusion over mixing. And that's a really detailed discussion in the books of, of Islamic law and virtues. What is superior? Is it superior for you to mix with people and endure the dramas and annoyances of social living? Or is it better to seclude yourself and just focus on ibadah? And there's relative virtues for each. And there's also pitfalls associated with each. Imam al-Ghazali, he weighs the benefits of khulta, of mixing with people. And he gives you the pitfalls of mixing with people. And then he gives you the virtues of uzla, of withdrawing. And then he tells you the pitfalls of withdrawing. And his conclusion is that the default is that Islam is a social religion. Like salat and jama'ah, masajid, madaris. Al-Idan, uh, it's a very communal religion. So that's the default, and that's always going to be superior, all things considered. But there are certain times or places or situations where one will be superior to the other, where eventually Uzla becomes superior. And there are some people for whom one will be superior than the other, but it's not for everybody. Right? Imam Madik, rahimahullah, he said, no one should do that until they gain firm understanding of the religion. Like they really need to educate themselves about their deen if they feel inclined to withdraw and go into the mountains by themselves. Because if they go into the mountains by themselves and they're not educated in their deen properly, they can go astray. And we have lots of examples of that in our history recorded in the books of ulama. Uh, Shaykh Ahmad al-Mubarak al-Lamati, rahimahullah, he mentions in Ibriz some journeys that he took with his Shaykh uh, where they encountered these kinds of lone people living in the mountains or living in small isolated islands. And these people were total juhal. And they had wild ideas about Allah and the deen and it, it messed with their minds. Only people who are really educated could do that uh, and come out of it safely. Imam Suyuti, for instance, after he studied for a very long time, he went into Khalwa like this for about a dozen plus years. And that's why we have so many books of Imam Suyuti. If you know anything about Imam Suyuti, you can think about the most obscure topic and you'll find he has a book on it. And he was able to write all of those books because that's what he was doing in the Khalwa. Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jailani did the same thing. You know, he wandered and lived like that for many years. But he was already a Hanbali and Shafi'i faqih in both madhabs. Right? He didn't go out there in ignorance. So yeah, that's a longer conversation. But Abu Dhar, of course, receives his tarbiyah from the Prophet And he knows his deen. And he was inclined towards that and was safe from the pitfalls associated with Uzla. So when he went out and did it, it was good for him. That shouldn't be taken as a universal prescription for everybody. Uh, I know of an individual who actually did that and they lost their mind. Like literally. This person, they, they interpreted certain uh, weak hadith. I think I talked about this in Navigating the Eskaton. This individual uh, interpreted certain hadith about the signs of the last day and in his understanding, these things had occurred already back in 2004. And for him, that was a sign to head for the hills. He headed for the hills. He disappeared. He lost his mind and uh, no one's ever seen him again. No one knows what happened to him. He just went crazy. Yeah. Abu Dhar, on the other hand, was safe. Hmm? 
I mean, he's in that general area. I don't know exactly where he's buried. Do you know where he's buried? Yeah. Oh, so he, so he went that far. On his way back to Medina. Okay. Yeah, I don't know the area where he's buried. Maybe we can find out exactly where it's at. I don't know. No, nobody prayed Janazah for him. Yeah. SubhanAllah. Yeah. Uh, and Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, his his reality, his state, it evokes uh, the words of Allah Ta'ala about Prophet Ibrahim. Allah Ta'ala says about Ibrahim alayhi salam that he was uh, an ummah. An ummah meaning a nation unto himself. Because Ibrahim had to migrate multiple times. And he lived in some relative seclusion at different points. And such Allah described him as an ummah unto himself. So he has a share of that. Radiallahu anhu. Yeah.